We have the privilege of free access to God. We have the assurance of purpose in the midst of our troubles and trials and difficulties in this life. And we have the responsibility of the church as our great priority. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will conclude his current series with part six of God's Great Secret. According to a Gallup poll, only 40% of Americans regularly attend church. While this may or may not surprise you, you might be wondering what this statistic has to do with the great and wonderful mystery of God that we've been looking at here in Ephesians chapter 3. Well, today Tom will examine the final practical result of God's great secret plan, His church. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you'll be encouraged and challenged to fulfill your purpose and place in the perfect plan of God. Prepare your heart now to receive God's Word as we join Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed. We have these privileges in Christ because of our connection to Christ. Through the objective work of Jesus Christ our Lord, these privileges are ours. Because He lived as our substitute and because He died as our substitute, we have free speech and free access through faith in Him, through our faith in Christ. These two great privileges are ours, not because we deserve them, because we've earned them, because they're our right, because we're worthy of them. They are ours solely on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. If you have any hope of accessing the God of the universe, you must put your entire hope of ever standing in His presence on the life and death of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as your substitute. And for those who have, we have the privilege of free and open access into God's presence. There's a third practical result of knowing God's great secret. We have the assurance of purpose in our trials. We have the assurance of purpose in our trials. Look at verse 13. Paul writes, Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. By therefore, as he begins the verse, Paul means in light of what I've just shared with you about this plan of God's, you know that I'm a prisoner in Rome because of my ministry to you Gentiles, and that could be a source of discouragement to you. But I'm asking you not to be discouraged. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged at my tribulations. Now the word tribulation here is a broad Greek word. It's a general word for external pressure. There are a lot of different things in our lives that can create pressure. Paul uses that word here, and in this context, clearly it's a reference to his being under house arrest in Rome. For us, it can be different things. And the external pressure that Paul was suffering was on their behalf. And he says, don't be discouraged about it. Now, why should they not be discouraged? I mean, after all, their spiritual father has been arrested. He has, by this time, spent somewhere between two and three years in jail. Why shouldn't they be discouraged? Well, Paul tells them, look at verse 13. For, 
because my tribulations, my external pressures, my imprisonment is for your glory. What's happening to me in the flow of my ministry will eventually bring you heavenly glory. You see, Paul wants them to know that his being imprisoned because of his ministry to the Gentiles was part of God's great plan, and it was therefore for their good. They shouldn't be discouraged by what appears to be a setback, because like Paul understood, they need to understand that this is part of God's great plan of the ages to put himself on display. That's how Paul looked at his troubles. Folks, this is a profound reminder from the life of Paul. Listen carefully. God's plan does not always involve external prosperity and success. Think about Paul for a moment. He was handpicked by Jesus Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to play a crucial role in God's great secret plan of the ages. Handpicked. And yet, that plan included some very difficult things for the Apostle Paul. Turn back to 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to what God's perfect, eternal plan for Paul included. 2 Corinthians 11, the middle of verse 23. It meant far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten by the Romans with rods. This is where sticks were tied together in a bundle, and the Romans would beat their prisoners with them. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. By the way, Paul writes this before the shipwreck account in Acts. So that's number four. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. One of the shipwreck was, shipwrecks was such that he was out in the ocean and had to float on wreckage for a day and night until he was rescued. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Folks, listen. That is a far cry from experiencing your best life now. Do you understand that Paul was handpicked by Jesus Christ to be his great apostle, to be a key component of his great eternal plan. And yet for Paul, that included hardship and difficulty and trial and trouble and suffering. And if that's not enough to challenge your thinking, go beyond Paul to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of the living God. He is at the very center of God's plan of the ages. And yet God's plan for Christ also included suffering and difficulty, and in his case, betrayal and hardship. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. Here the writer of Hebrews describes what Jesus encountered in his earthly life. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. As he talks about him as a high priest able to sympathize with us, he says in verse 7, in the days of his flesh, that is during his earthly life, 
He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Jesus Christ didn't need to learn obedience because he was disobedient. He wanted to learn obedience because he wanted to be the model and pattern for us to follow. And so in his humanity, he learned obedience and he learned it through the path of suffering of various kinds. This was part of God's plan for Christ. Folks, this is diametrically opposed to the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers who will tell you that your best life is now, and they mean a life of external success and health and wealth and prosperity. No, God's great plan of the ages included some very difficult times for His Son, for His apostles, for individual Christians in the New Testament era, and folks, I hate to tell you this, but for us as well. Solomon says that being human means experiencing trouble and trials. He put it like this. He said, man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. As surely as the sparks of a a fire flow upward, even in the same way, it's guaranteed that if you're human, you will experience trouble and trials and pressures and difficulty and hard times. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. The good news is that just like with Paul, because you and I are part of the church, we too are part of God's eternal plan. We don't play the role Paul played in God's great eternal plan, but we're part of that plan. We're part of the church on which God is putting His glory on display. And God intends to use the difficulties and troubles and trials that come into our lives for our good. Romans 8, 28 is still in the Bible, even though it's often used tritely. It's still true that God is weaving together all of the experiences of our lives for those who love Him, who are called according to that eternal plan. He's weaving together the events of our lives for our good and His glory. I don't know what you're facing this morning, what trouble and trial you're enduring in life, but I can tell you this, one of the great outcomes of The revelation of God's eternal secret is just like with Paul, we can realize, listen, this is all part of the plan. And God means it for good. He's putting His glory and His wisdom on display in the church, and that includes in my life. I'm not promised a life of ease and health and wealth and prosperity, but I am promised that God will put Himself on display in my life, even through my troubles, as He did with Paul and as He did with His Son. So with the revealing of God's great secret, there are several practical life-changing results. You and I have the privilege of free speech before God. We have the privilege of free access to God. And we have the assurance of purpose in our trials. They're all part of that great plan that God intends for our good. But there's one more practical result. And I know you're thinking, How's he going to get another one when he's covered all of verse 13? There's one more practical result that permeates this entire passage. It screams in every line. It shouts through every word. The fourth and final result of knowing God's secret is this. We have the responsibility of the church as our great priority. We have the responsibility of the church as our great priority. Now think back for a moment about what Paul has said about the church in this passage. 
he has made two sweeping assertions about the church. Number one, he has said in verses 10 and 11 that the church is at the center of God's plan of the ages along with Christ. And number two, he has said in verse 10 that the church is the primary stage on which God is putting his glory on display in the world. That makes the church pretty important, doesn't it? Look down at chapter 3, verse 21. We'll get to this verse. This is where the, the prayer of all Paul has taught sort of flows out in prayer to God. Look at what he says in verse 20. We quote this verse often, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory. How does God get glory in the world? In the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul says the church is pretty important. I mean, those are two big assertions. The church, the center of God's plan of the ages. The church, God's primary stage in the world for displaying His glory. But let me back up from this paragraph and take a slightly broader view of what Paul is saying about the place and priority of the church in this letter. Let me briefly take you just through this letter and show you the other assertions that Paul adds about the priority of the church. We've seen two right here. Let me give you a few more, and I'm just going to run through them very quickly. Number three, the church is Christ's current preoccupation. It's Christ's current preoccupation. Ephesians 1.22, God gave Christ His head over all things to the church. Christ is ruling in His church. It's His preoccupation. He's involved in everything. Number four, the church is the only entity on earth that is under the immediate loving leadership of Christ. It's the only organization on earth that Christ shows immediate leadership over. Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church in the same way that a husband is the head of the wife. Number five, the church is the supreme object of Christ's love. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church. Number six, the church was the purpose behind the death of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.25 says, He loved the church and He gave Himself up for her. Number seven, the church is being cleansed at this point by Christ for Himself. Ephesians 5.26, He gave Himself for her that He might cleanse her, that He might sanctify her. Number eight, and this one's shocking, the church will be the bride of Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians 5.27. He did all of this. He rescued her. He's making her holy. In order that, verse 27, he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And in the context of this section, he's describing the church as the bride of Jesus Christ. Folks, there is no better or more powerful way to express Christ's feelings about the church than this, to say that he thinks of her and seeks for her to be his bride. Number nine, the church is nourished and cherished by Christ. Ephesians 5.29 says that Christ nourishes and cherishes the church even as husbands should their wives. Number ten, the church is inseparably bound to Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, permanently united. 
Verse 32, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Paul is saying, listen, just as in marriage a man and a woman are to be insolubly united, so has Christ been permanently united to his church. You begin to understand, as you see what Paul says about the church here in Ephesians, why Paul gave his life for the advancement of the church? Compare Paul's great goal, living for the church, with that of many Christians who live for so many other priorities. Do you understand that for most of church history, if you were a Christian, your life revolved around the church? When churches began to have their own buildings, often in communities that had been permeated by the gospel, those buildings were built in the center of town. You can still see that in, in the older villages of both Europe and America. The church was not only the center of spiritual life, it was even the center of social life. For true Christians, throughout church history, the church was the center of their world. Everything else revolved around and found its place in relation to the church. But we live in a different day, and we're hearing different voices. George Barna, along with others, argues that this centrality of the church should no longer be true. In his book, Revolution, in which he argues for a totally different model of what, how Christians ought to live outside of the church, he writes this, Millions of people who are growing as Christians and passionate about their faith have come to recognize that the local church is not and need not be the epicenter of their spiritual adventure. He goes on to argue that we ought to be committed to the universal church, but not necessarily to a local one. Is Barna right? Is it time for a new model, a new approach to our faith? Should we be devoted to the universal church and not to the local one? Perhaps the model of a Christian living out his life as part of a local church is an outdated first century modality. The scriptural response is an emphatic no. Barna's thesis doesn't stand up to the test of scripture. It is true, the word church is used to speak of the universal church, of all Christians everywhere, all true Christians everywhere. That's primarily how Paul uses it in Ephesians, in the passage we just, passages we just looked at together. But the same word is used much more frequently in the New Testament of a local gathering of believers like this one. There's so many passages. I wrote a few in my notes, and I don't even have time to cover all of those. Let me just take you to two. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul writes to one church in Corinth, and he says this, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. The church wasn't merely universal for Paul. The church was local. You see it again over in chapter 11, verse 18. Again, writing to one church, the church in Corinth. And in chapter 11, verse 18, speaking about the Lord's Supper and the abuses, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, when you come together in church, is literally what he says, when you come together, you are the church. You, that local body of believers in Corinth. Folks, when we come together, we are the church. In the last book of the New Testament, in Revelation, the last time the word church occurs, it is used of seven local churches in Asia Minor. The word church often occurs in the plural, churches, 35 times in the New Testament, clearly speaking of local churches. So the local congregation, listen carefully, where the Word of God is truly taught is as really and truly a manifestation of the church as the whole is. 
That means that your relationship to the local church matters. In fact, in New Testament terms, your connection to the local church defines and reveals the nature of your relationship to the whole church of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let me ask you, how's your relationship with the church? Can you honestly say that the church of Jesus Christ, this church that you've chosen to belong to, has its rightful place in your life? Again, we're not talking about the facilities. We're not talking about the building. This building isn't the church. We are the church who come here to meet. Does the church have its rightful place in your life? Let me ask you some questions for you to evaluate the level of your commitment to the church of Jesus Christ. Just test yourself. You've seen the priority it was in Paul's life. How is it in yours? Number one, is the gathering of the church on the Lord's Day for worship the high point of your week? Is the gathering of the church for worship on the Lord's Day the high point of your week? Number two, is the church your highest weekly priority? Number three, do you regularly attend, consistently give, and faithfully serve in the church? Number four, is there any organization or activity that gets more of your time than the church? Now, I understand that God has given you responsibility to work, and he's given that the Bible says six days shall you work. He's given you a family that you need to care for and shepherd. But beyond that, is there any organization or activity that gets more of your time than the church? Number five, does any other commitment demand more of your resources, your time, your money, your energy, than the church? Number six, and this is really the key one, does anything have more of your heart than the church? Think for a moment of all of the activities and organizations that you and your family are involved in. Just make a mental list of those things that really absorb a lot of your time and energies in this life. Let me ask you about those things. Which one will deepen your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him? Which one will build the greatest character into your life and the lives of your children? Which one is eternal? Which one has God commanded you to be involved in? And which one has the highest priority to Christ? It's the church of Jesus Christ. Is it your highest priority? Because God has revealed His great secret. You and I enjoy profound and intentional results. We have the privilege of free speech before God. We have the privilege of free access to God. We have the assurance of purpose in the midst of our troubles and trials and difficulties in this life. And we have the responsibility of the church as our great priority. Folks, God has let us in on His great secret. It's Christ, and it has profound results for all of us. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series titled, God's Great Secret. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. But Tom, before we end our time today, how about sharing a closing thought with us? It's my hope that this series has not only encouraged you at a, at a personal level with what God has done in saving you, but I hope you'll also find comfort in the knowledge that we live in a broken, troubled world, and so many of us can be 
really at fear because of the circumstances of the world around us. And this passage reminds us that we don't need to be, that God has a plan, and he's working that plan out. And for us, very practically, what we need to concentrate on is our continuing part in that plan, which, as Paul explained so beautifully, is our real and personal and consistent involvement in a local body of believers in the church. I hope you'll hear that challenge, and you will make the church the center of your life as God has made it the very center of his plan. Thanks, Tom. And friend, we want to let you know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleash.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.